welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, February 3rd. I'm your reader, Will Potter. Let's start off with a state politics article. Bill would change how genders are defined. Reynolds' proposal would put sex changes on Iowa drivers' licenses, birth certificates. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has proposed a bill that would define man and woman in Iowa code. The bill would require transgender Iowans list both their sex assigned at birth and their post-transition sex on their driver's license and birth certificate. Reynolds filed the House Study Bill 649 Thursday, a day after transgender Iowans and LGBTQ and civil rights advocates and allies flocked to the Capitol to protest a bill that would have changed the way transgender Iowans are protected under Iowa Civil Rights Act. The bill, which would have eliminated gender identity as a protected class under Iowa's Civil Rights Act and instead add the act to the act's covered disabilities gender dysphoria died in a House subcommittee Wednesday as hundreds of Iowans cheered in the hallway outside. Reynolds' bill would amend state law for the purpose of statutory construction to legally define sex, male, female, mother, and father, and require all governmental entities in the state to abide by these definitions when collecting data. It defines a female as a person whose biological reproductive system is developed to produce ova and a male as a person whose biological re reproductive system is developed to fertilize the ova of a female. The term woman or girl refers to female and the term man or boy refers to male, the section continues. The bill goes on to echo language associated with the 1896 U.S. Supreme Court decision in the case Plessy v. Ferguson, which declared segregation on the basis of race to be, to be legal. The bill says that the term equal does not mean same or identical, and that separate accommodations are not inherently unequal. It would classify a person born with a medically verifiable diagnosis or disorder or difference of sex development as disabled and eligible for legal protections and accommodations afforded under the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990 and applicable state law. The bill would also prevent transgender Iowans who have had sex reassignment surgery from simply changing their sex on their birth certificate or driver's license. Currently, Iowa residents can do so by submitting either a court order for a name change or an official physician's letter or for proof of gender transition treatment. HSB 649 would require a person's sex at birth to be listed along with any sex reassignment for people seeking to change their birth certificate. The bill would also create a record of any sex changes on Iowa's driver's license for people who apply to update the document after reassignment surgery. Other Republican-led states, including Florida, have enacted similar policies rescinding the ability to change gender markers on driver's license and aiming to legally define terms such as man and woman based on biological sex at birth. Women and men are not identical, they possess unique biological differences, Reynolds said in a statement. That's not controversial, it's just common sense. Just like we did with girls' sports, this bill protects women's spaces and rights afforded to us by Iowa law and the Constitution. It's unfortunate that defining a woman in code has become necessary to protect spaces where women's health, safety, and privacy are being threatened, like domestic violence shelters and rape crisis centers. 
The bill allows the law to recognize biological differences while forbidding unfair discrimination. Now here's a subheader. It says, LGBTQ advocates, the bill is another attack. LGBTQ and civil rights advocates said the bill is another broad attack on transgender Iowans and erases non-binary people from the law entirely. Over the last two years, Reynolds has signed into law a series of new laws passed by state house Republicans impacting transgender and, LG and other LGBTQ Iowans, including a ban on gender, gender transition treatments and surgeries for minors, a ban on the teaching of gender identity or sexual orientation through sixth grade, a ban on transgender students using K-12 school bathrooms that align with their gender identity by requiring students to use the bathroom that aligns with their gender at birth, and a ban on transgender girls competing in girls' sports. LGBTQ advocacy group One Iowa said the legislation will require transgender people to out themselves anywhere they have to present their ID. Additionally, it could be interpreted as segregating transgender Iowans in facilities owned, operated, or funded by state government, according to the group. Requiring government-funded or run domestic violence shelters and rape crisis centers to treat transgender women inconsistent with their gender identity would conflict with federal law that prohibits discrimination based on gender identity and put federal funds at risk, according to One Iowa. We demand that Governor Reynolds stop her cruel, relentless attack on the LGBTQ community and start focusing on things that matter, funding our schools, lowering our cancer rates, cleaning up our water. One Iowa Action Executive Director Courtney Reyes said in a statement, Over and over again, the focus at the State House seems to be on re relegating LGBTQ Iowans to second-class status, Reyes said. We've had enough. We've, we showed up in massive numbers to stop the attack on our trans siblings, and will show up again if this harmful legislation moves a single step forward. Iowa Safe Schools, an, ad, an advocacy group that works with LGBTQ youth and allies, called the governor's bill an affront to everything that we're about as Iowans. Governor Reynolds has made it crystal clear that transgender Iowans are not welcome in their own state, said Becky Taylor, executive director for Iowa Safe Schools. Our organization would strongly suggest that the governor retake elementary civics class. Separate but equal is inherently unconstitutional. Our organization will fight tirelessly to ensure our students are afforded equal treatment under the law. And another subheader. ACLU. Bill is horrifying. Pete McRoberts, policy director for ACLU of Iowa, said the proposal was horrifying and creates unusual and unprecedented privacy concerns that would require transgender Iowans to disclose their private medical history on their driver's licenses for anyone to see. Roberts disputed the governor's argument that the bill is needed to protect women's health, safety, and privacy. He said the bill is written like it would make it harder to defend workplace protections for women due to language that says any program to prohibit non-discrimination of women must be offered in the same way for men. The bill states, any state law, policy, or program that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex shall be construed to forbid unfair treatment of females or males in relation to similarly situated members of the opposite sex. It's completely unnecessary. It doesn't reflect reality, and it does not and it's not reflective of Iowa law or history, McRoberts said of the bill, calling it an assault on the very few Iowans who have completed a gender transition. 
I question why we're doing this, why we're excluding transgender people from state law, not eliminating protections for them. I mean, excluding them, he said. Now let's move on to a different article. Uh, Cedar Rapids Schools Transportation Chief Up Early on Snow Days. A 3 a.m. Scott ring travels across district to see if the roads are safe. When meteorologists call for an inclement weather, Cedar Rapids School Transportation Manager Scott Wing drives across the city by 3 a.m. to check road conditions. Snow, ice, and fog drives Wing out of bed when most people are sleeping to determine whether road conditions will be treacherous for drivers, he said. He goes off the beaten path, staying away from the city's priority snow routes, and that are the first to be cleared to get a better feel for the overall road conditions. We're deep into the neighborhoods here in Cedar Rapids. Will a two hundred will a twenty thousand pound rear wheel bus be able to go in any of these conditions? Wing asked. The Cedar Rapids Community School District covers more than a hundred square miles, and weather conditions can vary drastically from one end of the district to another. Wing drives paved gravel and hilly roads to ensure conditions are safe enough for bus and teenage drivers to get to school. He drives a district-issued Ford Ranger in two-wheel drive. If he gets stuck in a snowdrift, which he's come close to only twice in his tenure, he can switch to four-wheel drive. He knows there's not a lot of people to rescue him in the middle of the night. If I'm having a lot of problems in two-wheel drive, I know my buses will have problems, Wing said. When bad weather threatens, school officials from Cedar Rapids, College Community, Linmar, Marianne Independent collaborate about 4.30 a.m. to make like-minded decisions on what the road conditions mean for the school day. Is it a snow day? Will school start off with a two-hour delay or have an early out? School officials also rely on the National Weather Service, which holds interactive webinars about 4.30 a.m. when the weather is questionable, giving them an opportunity to talk about the weather conditions forecast for their area. Conditions do change after the decision is made. Those are tough days. But we do our best, Wing said, adding that it's better for students to arrive late to school than for a school bus to risk a weather-related crash. As one of the top five employers in Cedar Rapids with almost 15,000 students, the district faces a big responsibility in keeping so many people safe, Wing said. Sometimes the forecasts are wrong. None of us own a crystal ball. It's difficult to get it right, Wing said. The decision about whether to delay or cancel school if the area is experiencing extreme cold temperatures are made by the superintendent's office, Wing said. It's not a road condition or transportation issue at that point. When we think about wind chill, we're considering skin exposure and freezing temperatures. If you've got some walking to school, if you've got someone walking to school, will they be safe? Propane-powered school buses, which makes up the majority of the district's fleet, are able to run at 55 degrees below zero. We won't be having school at a temperature at that temperature, but they will be able to start, Wing said. School buses that require diesel fuel begin to struggle in about 15 degrees, Wing said. Removing snow from school buses isn't a concern. The the bus roofs are curved, so snow rolls right off the roofs once you start moving them, Wing said. Bus drivers typically begin arriving at the Cedar Rapids District offices, the Education Leadership and Support Center in Northwest Cedar Rapids, at about 5.50 a.m. During the winter months, the school district's transportation office, which opens at 6 a.m., 
fields the phone calls from families asking if the school will be in session that day. Families are also able to get notifications about weather delays or cancellations by signing up for phone calls, text messages, or emails in English, French, Spanish, and Swahili. Families can sign up during their annual verification on Infinite Campus, an online student information system. Meanwhile, the district's buildings and grounds team begins, to clear, begins clearing snow at midnight from school parking lots, said Chad Schumacher, the director of operations for the district. A snowfall of up to four inches, and it'll take about seven hours for the five-person crew to clear out all locations. It takes a lot of effort, Schumacher said. School custodial staff are responsible for clearing snow from sidewalks and playgrounds. The goal is to have snow and ice removed completed from the district's 30 schools, school buildings by 7 a.m. Number one priority is making sure kids are safe getting to school, Schumacher said. We want to do our best to make sure they're in our buildings, getting the education they deserve. Now on to another politics article. Iowa AEA overhaul bill will not move forward. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' bill to overhaul the state's area education agencies won't move forward in the House, the chair of the Chamber's Education Committee said this week. Republican Representative Skyler Wheeler of Hull and the committee chair halted the bill's advancement after a subcommittee meeting on Wednesday, saying that he wanted further conversation before taking action. In a Facebook post the next day, Wheeler said the bill will not move forward in the committee. The most recent version of Governor Reynolds' proposed bill would give schools the ability to opt out of the AEA's special education services and seek them, for, and seek them form another party. She said that the change is necessary as the test scores of Iowa students with disabilities have lagged and the state spends a comparatively high amount on those students without seeing top-level results. We just need to step back and start to ask some of those questions, with the overhaul objective of making sure that we're doing everything we can to get these kids with disabilities the education that they deserve and hopefully see better outcomes, Reynolds told the reporters this week. Though the House bill has stalled, Wheeler and the Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley said that they are still interested in working on legislation to address the special education in Iowa. I have felt compelled to work this issue because of because this is about our kids, and we have to get it right if we want to make changes, Wheeler said in the post. I believe we get it right if we... I believe... I believe we absolutely have room to improve, and we need to continue to have those discussions. I think it's vastly important to have all of the stakeholders come together, work through this, get consensus, and move forward. Wheeler did not immediately respond to a request for further comment on Friday. Dozens of people, including school administrators and parents of students with disabilities, urged lawmakers to slow down on the bill in a pair of meetings Wednesday, warning that the bill could weaken the opportunities for special education in the state. A number of superintendents spoke in favor of the bill, saying that they want to have control over the, their special education funding. The bill, Senate Bill 3073, passed out of a Senate subcommittee on Wednesday. The Republicans on the panel, though, said the governor's bill was not sufficient and would likely see changes. Grassley told reporters Thursday that the majority party agrees that they need to do something, 
but suggests that Reynolds' bill would not be the final product. We want to try and put a plan together that we feel best suits our school districts that we all represent, he said. We're obviously going to work with some of that framework with the governor laid out, but we also want to sit down with the stakeholders and see what pieces that we can do that fit what we're trying to get to. Democrats voted against the proposal in both chambers on Wednesday. House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst of Windsor Heights said that Thursday that Republicans are in disarray after they failed to agree on the AEA proposal. As we watch arguments continue to happen in broad daylight in front of us while they disagree on where to go, we are united in proposing our legislation and fighting for everyday Iowans, Confirst said. Here's a subheader. What would Reynolds' AEA bill do? Iowa's nine AEAs, which are governmental agencies separate from the Department of Education, provide special education to school districts in their boundaries and assist with classroom equipment and media services, professional development, and talented and gifted instructions, among other services. Under Reynolds' proposal, federal and state funding for special education would be sent directly to schools, which could then decide whether or not to contract with the AEAs. If they do not, schools still would have the legal obligation to educate students with disabilities and could obtain the instruction from a third party, such as a private company. AEAs still would be able to provide the other education and media services they now provide if schools request and it is, and it is approved by the Department of Education. A property tax levy that funds AEA's media services would be cut. The bill would centralize much of the oversight and operations of the AEA under the Department of Education. The department's director would be in charge of appointing AEA chief administrators, combining or dissolving AEAs, and approving AEA's budget proposals. The bill includes a provision to increase starting salary for teachers to $50,000. Teachers with at least 12 years of experience would be paid at least $62,000. Another subheader. Iowa GOP leader calls for reset. Grassley said he wants a reset in the conversation around the bill, but thinks that House Republicans can preserve a number of the provisions in Reynolds' proposal. He said that he supports the provisions and the accountability for the AEAs, but wants to make sure that school districts and parents have certainty about the services they will receive. Grassley said the fee-for-service model in the governor's proposal, which would allow schools to contract with AEAs and opt, out, opt in or out of different services, could be pre preserved as Republicans work on a new proposal. I think we could do that, but just want to make sure that there is certainty over the next several years for school districts, and like I said, more importantly, certainty for parents receiving those services. Because right now, we feel that's one piece that's been lost in the conversation, he said. In appearance on Iowa Press on Iowa PBS on Friday, Senate Majority Leader Jack Whit Whitaver of Grimes said that he's optimistic about finding a, com a compromise on the bill. And the Senate plans to continue working on the governor's proposal. I don't know about starting from scratch because it is a totally different bill now than it was three weeks ago, he said. But we're going to have to continue the conversation and make that make the case why these reforms are necessary if it's going to become law. Democrats urge continued activism. Des Moines area Democratic lawmakers said at a forum on the AEA bill Friday 
that the emails and activism uh, from people opposed to the bill has been effective in helping slow it down and prevent Republicans from getting behind the proposal. Democratic Senator Sarah Trone Garriott of Waukee said opposition from the House Republicans is most likely the way the bill will be stopped. When you speak up, it's a powerful thing. So don't ever think that it's not that's just not enough or it's too little, said Representative Mary Madison of West Des Moines. Because, but together, we're a powerhouse, so come to the Capitol, use those public forums, and continue your emails. Now on to a new article. Let's read, Johnson Dems won't denounce county attorney for protester arrests. After a heated debate and chance of drop the charges, the Johnson County Democratic Central Committee voted against censoring the Democratic County Attorney for charging several seven protesters who identify as transgender and who are accused of disrupting a lecture by a dis- transitional speaker at the Iowa at the University of Iowa. The resolution, introduced by Johnson County Supervisor John Green, was rejected in a thirty-four to thirteen vote at the Thursday meeting at the Carpenters Union Local twelve sixty in Iowa City. Green's resolution was in response to County Attorney Rachel Zimmerman-Smith's filing charges of disorderly contact, a series of misdemeanor, a serious misdemeanor, and interference with official acts, a simple misdemeanor, against seven people protesting conservative distransistier Chloe Cole's lecture at the University of Iowa in October. The charges were filed roughly a month after the protests. Green told the Daily Iowan his resolution gave Democrats an opportunity to talk about the values they want to adopt as a party. Although the resolution failed, Green said that he was happy to see the discussion since the Central Committee's uh, meetings seldom draw so many attendees. This is something that everybody in the party is always saying we want more of this. We want more engagement. We want people to be involved, Green said. I came into this knowing that it was going to be an uphill battle, and I'm prepared to deal with that move ahead, and I hope my colleagues are as well. Zimmerman Smith attended the meeting, and afterwards, she said, found the whole thing sad and glad it was over. There's a subheader. Supporters protect marginalized group. At the meeting, eight people spoke in favor of the resolution and eight people spoke against it. Among those in favor of the resolution were Mandy Remington, who last month said that she would run for Johnson County Board of Supervisors, and Iowa City Council member Laura Burgess. Burgess said that the county's attorney's duty is to justice, but the law gives prosecutors discretion to pursue cases, and that the county's attorney has no obligation to prosecute cases if the facts and circumstances suggest it's unjust. Despite this, Zimmerman Smith pursued the cases, which Burgess said must mean the county attorney believes the charges were just. I hate that this is personal. I hate that this is infighting, Burgess said. I think it's incredibly important as a party that we just talk about justice and the fact that it is a value we share. So let's hold common ground and hold each other accountable. Remington said that it was important for the party to listen to young voters, particularly on LGBTQ plus issues. 
and she compared the issue to gun violence, pointing to the fatigue of hearing people offer thoughts and prayers instead of actions. We're tired of hearing thoughts and prayers, but the platitudes that I've heard tonight and online leading up to this point, uh, leading up to this meeting about, yes, we care about trans folks, but that doesn't really amount to anything more than thoughts and prayers. And we can do better, she said. Nicole Yeager, chair of the com- campaign to organize graduate student political action committee, said the charges, the charges tor- targeted transgender people, with some claiming that out of the 100-plus protesters, only the LGBTQ protesters were charged. New subheader, opponents focusing on the wrong thing. Former Johnson County attorney and Janet Linus argued that the protesters violated the law not for protesting, but for blocking the street. Linus said that there is no evidence police specifically targeting LGBTQ plus people in their arrests, and Zimmerman was and Zimmerman Smith was upholding the law and bringing charges. Both statements drew boos from members of the crowd. If Zimmerman Smith hadn't done her job, she added, the Iowa Attorney General could step in to prosecute the protesters instead. Former Iowa City Council member Pauline Taylor said the job of a county attorney is to enforce the laws and that neither elected officials nor the Central Committee should tell Zimmerman Smith how to do her job. Johnson County Sheriff Brad Kunkel said that it was frustrating that the County Democratic Central Committee was even discussing the resolution. The committee instead should be focusing on moving the party forward and turning Iowa into a purple state again. We're distracted and bogged down by a resolution that's predicated on incomplete information, being directed at the wrong piece of the system, Kunkel said. But what's most troubling to me is the length that elected officials have gone through to exert influence on the judicial system is some of the most unethical behavior I've ever seen in local government. If county Republicans had done something similar, he said, Democrats would have been quick to call out such behavior. Final subheader, community reaction. The reaction to the charges against the protesters has been controversial since they were announced. On December 9th, University of Iowa students and Iowa City residents marched through Iowa City to protest the charges, stopping at the building housing of the office of the county attorney. On January 24th, the Iowa City Human Rights Commission issued a statement condemning the charges and calling for the dismissal. The statement also also referenced the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, which includes a provision stating people have the right to protest without interference. Johnson County Supervisor uh, Fixmer Oraz also released a statement saying that they had met with Zimmerman Smith, asking her to drop the charges. Fixmer Oraz called on Johnson County Democrats to stand behind its commitment to people over politics and vote in favor of the resolution. A petition on change.org to have the charges dropped received 787 signatures with a goal of 1,000. The petition also includes a link to a fundraiser to pay the protesters' legal fees, having raised $10,250 toward a $20,000 goal. Trial is set for the end of February for Tara McGovern, one of those arrested after McGovern rejected a plea deal. Let's go on to another article. This time we'll read, Iowa City Parent Pleads to Taking Gun into School, Threatening Staff. 
He faces prison, but will ask for a deferred judgment. A parent who was armed came into Grant Wood Elementary School last November to confront and threaten the principal, and a staff member pleaded guilty Friday in Johnson County District Court. Brandon J. Jones, 31, of Iowa City, pleaded guilty to carrying weapons on school grounds, a felony, and two charges of first-degree harassment, an aggravated misdemeanor. He faces up to nine years in prison. The prosecution will ask the judge to run the five-year felony and both two-year harassment sentences consecutively for nine years. Jones plans to ask for deferred judgment, according to the written plea submitted Friday. The, remains, the remaining charges of second-degree burglary will be dismissed at sentencing as part of the plea agreement. Jones, in the plea agreement, admitted to be carrying handguns on school grounds and to be harassing Ernest Cox, Grantwood the Grantwood principal, and Ryan Brown, a school facilitator. He also admitted that he threatened to commit a forcible felony. According to a criminal complaint, Jones walked into the school on November 29, 2023, to confront Cox about sending home Jones's son from school. Staff members told police he demanded to see the principal and threatened to assault Cox multiple times. He also threatened to assault Brown, who attempted to de-escalate the situation, the complaint stated. At one point, Jones removed his loaded pistol from his belt holster and handed it to his girlfriend who was with him and told her, hold this so I don't do something stupid with it. Jones then went into the school's halls searching for Cox, according to the complaint. When staff members told him they were calling the police, he left the building and retrieved his gun from his girlfriend before the police stopped him. Surveillance recordings confirmed the, the staff members' account of what happened. Jones admitted to police to taking the gun into the school and handling and handing it off to his girlfriend, the complaint stated. He said he didn't remember threatening Cox and staff members, but he admitted that he may have in the heat of the moment. The school was placed on hold, a type of lockdown where the students and staff are kept in classrooms at about 9 a.m. after Jones came into the building with a gun. Superintendent Matt Dur Dergner sent an email to families informing them of the incident that day. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, February 3rd on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Starting with Rocky the Mandalorian star Carl Weathers dies at 76. Carl Weathers, a former NFL linebacker who became a Hollywood action movie and comedy star playing nemesis turned ally Apollo Creed in the Rocky movies, facing off against Arnold Schwarzenegger in Predator and teaching golf in Happy Gilmore, has died. He was 76. Matt Luber, his manager, said Weathers died Thursday. His family issued a statement saying he died peacefully in his sleep. Comfortable flexing his muscles on the big screen in Action Jackson, as he was joking around on the small screen in such shows as Arrested Development, Weathers was perhaps most closely associated with Creed, who made his first appearance as the cocky, undisputed heavyweight champion world champion in 1976 Rocky, starring Sylvester Stallone. It puts, you up on, it puts you on the map and makes your career, so to speak, but that's a one-off, so you've got to follow it up with something. Fortunately, those movies kept coming, and Apollo Creed became more and more of the people's consciousness and welcome in their lives, 
and it was just the right guy at the right time, he told the Daily Beast in 2017. Most recently, Withers has starred in the Disney Plus hit The Mandalorian, appearing in all three seasons. Creed, who appeared in the first four Rocky movies, memorably died in the ring of 1984's Rocky IV, going toe-to-toe with the hulking, steroid-using Soviet Ivan Drago, played by Dolph Lundgren. Before he entered the ring, James Brown sang Living in America with Showgirls, and Creed popped up on a balcony in a star-spangled banner shorts and waistcoat combo, and an Uncle Sam hat dancing and taunting Drago. A bloodied Creed collapses in the ring after taking a vicious beating, twitches, and is cradled by Rocky as he dies, inevitably setting up a fight between Drago and Rocky. But while Creed is gone, his character's son, Michael B. Jordan's Andonis Creed, would lead his own boxing trilogy starting in 2015. Weathers went on a 1987 Predator, went on to 1987's Predator, where he flexed his pecs alongside Schwarzenegger, Jesse Ventura, and a host of others, and 1988's Novua Black's politician flick, Action Jackson, where he trains his flamethrower on a bad guy and asks, how do, you like, how do you like your ribs before broiling him? He later added a false wooden hand to play golf pro for the 1996 comedy classic Happy Gilmore opposite Adam Sandler and starred in Dick Wolf's short-lived spinoff series Chicago Justice in 2017 and in, the Dis- and in Disney's The Mandalorian, earning an Emmy Award nomination in 2021. He also voiced Combat Carl in the Toy Story franchise. Weathers grew up admiring such actors as Woody Strode, whose combination of physique and acting prowess in Spartacus made him an, made an early impression. Others idolized included other idolized included actors Sidney Poiter, Poiter, Harry Belfonte, and athletics Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali, stars who broke the mold and the color barrier. There are so many people that came before me who I admired and whose success I would I wanted to emulate, and just kind of hit the benchmarks they hit in terms of success, who created a pathway that I've been able to walk and find success as a result. And hopefully I can inspire someone else to do good work as well, he told the Detroit News in 2023. I guess I'm just a lucky guy. Growing up in New Orleans, Weathers started performing in plays at an early as early as grade school. In high school, athletics took him down another path, but he would reunite with his first love later in life. Weathers played college football at San Diego State University. He majored in theater and went on to play one season in the NFL for the Oakland Raiders in 1970. When I found football, it was a completely different outlet, Weathers told the Detroit News. It was more about the physicality, although one does feed the other. You needed some smarts because there were playbooks to study the film to study and film to study, just the uh, opposition on any given week, just to learn the opposition. After the Raiders, he joined the Canadian Football League, playing for two years while finishing up his studies during the offseason at San Francisco State University. He graduated with a Bachelor's of Arts in Drama in 1974. After appearing in several films and TV shows, including Good Times, The Six Million Dollar Man, the Heat of the Night, and Starsky and Hutch, as well as fighting Nazis alongside Harrison Ford in Force 10 from Navarone, from Weathers landed his knockout role, Creed. 
he told The Hollywood Reporter that his start in the iconic franchise was not auspicious. He was asked to read with the writer, Stallone, then unknown. Weathers read the scene, but felt it didn't land, so he blurted out, I could do a lot better if you got me a real actor to work with, he recalled. So I just insulted the star of the movie without, and without really knowing it and not intending to. He also lied that he had any boxing experience. Later in life, Weathers developed a passion for directing, helming episodes of Silk Stalking and the Lorenzo Llamas vehicle Renegade. He directed a season three episode of The Mandalorian. Weathers introduced himself to another generation when he portrayed himself as the opportunistic and extremely thrifty actor who becomes involved with the dysfunctional clan at the heart of Arrested Development. The, the Weathers character likes to save money, making broth from discarded food. There's still plenty of meat on that bone, and baby, you've got a stew going. And for the right price, agrees to become an acting coach for the delusional and talent-free thespian Tobias Funky played by David Cross. Weathers is survived by his two sons. Now let's go on to some more local obituaries. Thomas Joseph McIntosh. Thomas Joseph McIntosh, 86, of Betram, Iowa, died January 31st, 2024. Tom's body has been donated to the University of Iowa Deeded Body Program. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday, February 6th at Cedar Memorial Funeral Home. Funeral Mass will be held at 10 a.m. Wednesday, February 7th at Immaculate Conception Church in Cedar Rapids. His ashes will be scattered to his beloved home sites by family. Tom, more affectionately known as Mac, was born July 21st, 1937 in Billings, Montana, the first child of Joseph and Jackie McIntosh. He graduated from Billings Central High School in 1955, received his Bachelor's of Arts degree from the University of Arizona in 1959 on a baseball scholarship, and his MD degree from St. Louis University in 1963. His postdoctoral training was at the University of Iowa in internal medicine from 1963 to 1966. He served in the National Institutes of Health National Heart Institute from 1966 to 1968, then returned to Iowa for a master's degree in pharmacology as a special NIH fellow. He practiced general internal medicine in Cedar Rapids from 1970 to 2002, with an internist's PC joining doctors Robert Sedlak and William Galbraith. The practice grew to 18 doctors before he retired. He became a fellow of the American College, American College of Physicians in 1976 and a master in 2003. He was a governor of the Iowa ACP from 1995 to 1999 and received the Laureate Award in 2000. He was the president of the Lynn County Heart Association in 1972, 1976, and 1980. He was elected president of the Mercy Medical Center staff in 1979, Lynn County Medical Society in 1992, president of the CRPHO from 1994 to 2002, and medical director from 1998 to 2000, from 19, yeah, 1998 to 2002. He volunteered and was the medical director of the Community Health Free Clinic from 2002 to 2012. He 
his joins besides God, family, friends, and practice of medicine included American Legion and semi-pro basketball, hunting ducks and pheasants with his Labradors, handball club, and later walking his lab, especially Lake, as the major treatments for his terminal disease. He was an avid sports fan, cheering for the Iowa Hawkeyes and the Chicago Cubs. Tom married Roma Pfeffer in 1958 in Billings, Montana, and became the parent of four children. Tom met Sandra in 1982, and they were married in April 18, 1991, in Las Vegas, Nevada. Surviving are his wife of 32 years, Sandra Lackey, McIntosh, brother Joe McIntosh of Mercer Island, Washington, children Allison Duffy of Three Forks, Montana, Judy McIntosh of Cedar Rapids, Andrew McIntosh of Cedar Rapids, Joe McIntosh of Chicago, Illinois, and grandchildren Alec, Chloe, Jacob, Jack, and Sam. He was preceded in death by his parents, younger sisters Judy and Sally, and brother Bill, all from Billings. In lieu of flowers, please direct any donations to the Community Health Free Clinic, Mercy Medical Center, or Unity Point Health St. Luke's Hospital. Gwen Lowe. Gwen Lowe passed away in January at the grand age of 95 in Madison, Wisconsin. She will be missed. Gwen grew up on a small farm in Illinois, the oldest child of Marjorie and Arnott Keating. Life on the farm was arduous during the Depression, and Gwen was happy to move into Monmouth for high school and college. She obtained her teaching degree at Monmouth College, and after graduation, hopped on a train for Love Island, Colorado, where she taught second grade. It was in Love Island that Gwen met the love of her life, Jim Lowe. They soon married and relocated to Iowa City with their two children, Kathy and Steve, and made a good life for themselves there for over 60 years. Gwen was a character, was a charter member of the St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church and became the foundation of her, friendship, her friendships and service. She served many in capacities over the years, including deacon and elder. She also she was also active in PEO and volunteered for the University Hospital for 25 years. Gwen's passions were her faith, her family, especially her grandsons, Ian and Jeff, and commitment to her service. She loved to read, travel, walk with friends, and visit her siblings, Joyce, Bill, and Linda. Gwen will be remembered for her sweet smile, generous heart, and her butterhorn rolls. She is survived by her daughter, Kathy, and her husband, Vic, her grandsons, Ian, Jeff, and their families, her daughter-in-law, Lori, and beloved sister, Linda. A small graveside service will be held in Iowa City in the spring for close friends and family. In honor of Gwen, please make a meal for someone in need. To share a thought, memory, or condolence with the family, please visit Gay and Sia Funeral and Cremation Service website at www.gayandsia.com. Now let's move on to some sports articles, starting with some women's basketball. Is now the time for a breakthrough at Maryland? Blutter and the Hawkeyes are 0-6 at College Park, including a 96-68 waxing last season. Kate Martin called it March Medicine at the time, and the old flavor went down hard. We don't ever want to feel the way we felt last year, Martin said. 
It was that tail-kicking 96-68 at the hands of Maryland in the second-to-last game of the regular season that ultimately cost Iowa a share of the 2022-2023 Big Ten's basketball championship. The Hawkeyes recovered from it, of course, winning their next nine games, including three in the Big Ten tournament, 89-84 over Maryland in the semifinals, and five in the NCAA tournament. They head back to back. They head back to Eastern Seaboard for an encounter with the Terrapins. Seven tonight at Xfinity Arena, and if there has ever been an uh, an opportunity for a breakthrough at College Park, it is now. Number three, Iowa is at its zenith. Maryland, well, is not. Every team is going through transition. They're a different team. They're going through adjustments. Martin said, but it doesn't mean they're not Maryland anymore. Everybody is going to give their best shot against us. Iowa is 0-6 at Maryland since the Terrapins joined the Big Ten. None of the last five were competitive. We've never won there, so that gives us a little added motivation, Iowa coach Lisa Blutter said. They're trying to do a lot of the same things that, that they have always done. Maybe they don't have the height that they had, had or the depth that they had. I expect to always get the best from the Terrapins coach, Brenda Fries, and Maryland's best because it has become a little rivalry despite the distance. Fries is a Cedar Rapids native attending Washington High School, also the home of Iowa sophomore Hannah Stulke. Fries knows my mom, Stulke said. My mom knows everybody because she likes to talk. My high school coach, Chris James, has known her since he was little. Obviously, she is an amazing basketball coach, and I'm excited to play her. Maryland won the Big Ten regular season's title in six of its first seven years in the league. The Terrapins were fourth in 2022, tied for second last year. This year, they are in danger of missing the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2009-2010. A win tonight certainly would enhance their resume. We want to play... We want to play us at their best. It makes basketball fun, Martin said. It's going to be a fun environment. We've gotten used to playing in a hostile environment. They've just, they're just very aggressive. They don't care who you are. They're going to pressure you. They're going to amp you up, but you're, they're going to speed you up. Now on to a girls wrestling article from siblings to state finals. Chloe Sheffield is the second of seven children in her family. One thing was constant with a, with a rambunctious bunch. You have to fight for everything, Sheffield said with a laugh. She didn't imagine roughhousing with her siblings would have taken her so far. Sheffield recorded a pin over walk-ons Mia Kurth in the 100-pound semifinals at the Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union State Wrestling Tournament Friday at Extreme Arena. She joined in the finals by a friend and teammate, Naomi Simmon, helping Decora wrap up the team title by the end of the third session. It means a lot, Sheffield said. I never, ever thought in a million years I'd be here. Originally, I just joined because it looked fun. I wrestled my siblings all the time. Might as well do it as a competition. Sheffield entered the tournament as the number six seed, but knocked off Algona's number three, Harley Tobin, in the quarterfinals to set up a rematch with Kurth, who pinned Sheffield in the regional finals. Sheffield flipped the script, building a 9-2 lead and getting the fall in 5 minutes and 57 seconds. Sheffield pulled away with a takedown and nearly 
and two near falls in each of the last two periods. The big thing for me is not thinking, Sheffield said. I went out there to wrestle because I want this and I love doing this. That was my mentality. Simon carried her down the hallway to the warm-up area in an adjacent field house after the match. It's so special, Sheffield said. Originally, I was so scared of Naomi. I was like, oh my gosh, she's a state champ. She's scary. We eventually became best friends overnight. Simon reached the state finals for the fourth time, counting two Iowa wrestling coaches and officials, association state titles, and last year's 170-pound IGHSAU championship. The University of Iowa signed and dominated, signee signed and dominated her way to the finals, decking West Marshall's number five, Avery Wittkop, in one minute and nine seconds. Simon improved to 47-0 after the semifinal and reached the title bout with a 129-0 career record. South Tama's Autumn Ellsbury advanced to the 170-pound final against Simon. Ellsbury pinned Waverly Shellrock's Carissa Oldenberger in 4 minutes and 20 seconds of the semifinal. I'm proud of myself to be here, Ellsbury said. I'm extremely happy. Decora is the first team besides Waverly Shellrock to win an IGHSAU or IWCOA team state title. The Vikings finished with five medalists. All nine qualifiers won at least two matches, and seven won at least three. They, they blew away last year's bronze effort. The Vikings had 132 points before Friday's finals. We've always wanted to get first, Sheffield said. Just to see it happening is amazing. Makes me want to cry. Animosa's Addison Musser doesn't subscribe to rankings and seedings. They're just numbers to her, and wrestling's unpredictability renders them meaningless. She was number eight at 130 pounds and wrestled for a state title after pinning Bettendorf's Lexi Peterson in, a in one minute and 28 seconds in the semifinals. The emotions were really high coming into the tournament, Musser said. My goals weren't getting into the finals. My goals were at the podium. Mount Vernon's Libby Dix reached, 100, reached the 170-pound final last season, falling to Simon and settling for second. The Mustangs Jr. returned to the final with an upset of Southeast Polk's top-seeded Bella Porcelli. Porcelli scored a first-period takedown and an escape in the second for a 3-0 lead going into third. Dix reversed Porcelli to her back for the pin in 4 minutes and 52 seconds. I just did what I had to, Dix said. I just had time I just had to time it up right. I knew I needed more than 3. Luckily, I went out there and got the pin. Iowa's Valley Brenna Brianna Peach missed the finals by a couple of points last season. She capitalized on another chance. Second-seeded Peach built a 4-0 lead and pinned Cedar Rapids Kennedy Ella Brown in 3 minutes and 32 seconds. Peach was motivated by last year's conclusion. It pushed me to go a little bit harder during the practices sometimes, Peach said, just to get myself better so I can make it back. West Liberty's Sylvia Garcia Vasquez improved her third place finish. She topped Riverside's Carly Henderson 4-2 to reach the 115-pound final and secure a top-two finish. Vinton Shellsberg's Ellie Wheats in one minute and ten seconds for her fourth in the tournament. Let's go back to some college basketball, but this time men's. Hawkeyes hit free throw late, hang on for big 
ten win. A tense, tight men's basketball game went to Iowa last night at the Carver Hawkeye Arena, seventy nine to seventy seven over Ohio State. It was the first time this season that Iowa won a game by less than nine points. Ohio State's last lead was fifty four to fifty three with 10 minutes and 59 seconds left, but the Buckeyes remained in close pursuit after that and tied the game at 67 and 69. Iowa reassumed a slim lead for a good with 3 minutes and 30 seconds left. Patrick McCaffrey made both ends of a 1-1 one one with 21 seconds remaining to boost the Hawkeyes' lead to 76-73. to 73. OSU's Bruce Thornton did likewise with 13 0.7 seconds left for a 76-75 score. McCaffrey was fouled again with 11.2 seconds to play, with his team in double bonus. He dropped in both foul shots again, then fouled OSU's Dale Bonner three seconds later. Bonner made one of two free throws, and it was 70, 78-76. Iowa's Peyton Sanford was fouled with seven minutes, with 7.6 seconds left. He missed the first free throw, made the second one, and it was 79 to 76. The Hawkeyes again fouled Bonner with four minutes with 4.5 seconds left. He made the first free throw, then deliberately missed the second. It hit the rim and was up for grabs, but the Buckeyes couldn't pull the ball out of the scrum, and time expired. The Hawkeyes improved to five and six in the Big Ten, 13 and nine overall. Ohio State slipped to three and eight and 13 and nine. The game had 15 ties and 10 lead changes. Iowa's Tony Perkins led all scorers with 20 points, his fifth straight game of hitting that mark. Ohio State had 38-36 to lead at halftime. Neither team led by more than four points in the half, and both had 7-0 runs. Iowa made eight of its first 10 field goals and try, tries and shot 52% in the half. Freshman Ladiji Dembele played 11 minutes in the first half and collared six rebounds for Iowa, equaling his career high. He played for a career high 20 minutes. Sanford and Josh Dix had 15 points for each, each for Iowa. The Hawkeyes' next game is Penn State, next Thursday night. Let's finish off today's recording with some times for some sports we'll be playing in the, the coming days. Some air, events of area interest. Women's basketball, Iowa at Maryland, 7 p.m. Iowa State at Central Florida, 11 a.m. Southeastern CC at Kirkwood, 1 p.m. Simpson at Luther at 2 p.m. And McKendry at Upper Iowa, 1 p.m. Cornell at Beloit at 3 p.m. Mount Mercy at Park at noon. For men's basketball, we have Murray State at UNI, 1 p.m. Iowa State at Baylor, 7 p.m. Western Iowa Tech at Kirkwood, 3 p.m. Simpson at Luther, 4 p.m. McKendry at Upper Iowa, 3 p.m. Cornell at Beloit, 1 p.m. And Mount Mercy at Park at 2 p.m. And then coming up pretty soon, there'll be the NFL Super Bowl, uh, Sunday, February 11th. And that will be the Kansas City Chiefs versus the San Francisco 49ers. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, February 3rd. I'm your reader, Will Potter. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.